welcome to the Everyday Neuro podcast series. I'm your host, Dr. Janine Cooper, and I'm aiming to provide you with knowledge and inspiration into understanding the fascinating world of the human brain. Today's podcast will focus on an area of human memory that has fascinated me for nearly 20 years and to which I've dedicated much of my own research. It's all about autobiographical memory or the ability to recall events pertaining to the self. It's the type of memory that enables us to recall personal information about who we are and what we did, with whom and when. Ultimately, it provides us with our sense of self and is integral to developing our identity across the lifespan, especially during our childhood and teenage years. It is the type of memory on which we base our decisions and future actions and thoughts. Basically, we use our unique autobiographical memories or our personal past memories to guide us on what to do in the future. However, sometimes when the areas of the brain that are associated with autobiographical memory functions don't develop properly or are damaged, which I'll tell you a bit more about later in the podcast then issues with autobiographical memory can occur. And these can have dramatic effects on the individual and those in their life. So what is autobiographical memory? Well, it is part of long-term memory and is considered to contain two main components. Information about facts, which we'll now call semantic memory, and information about events, called episodic memory. Such that episodic memory is about the where, so for example, a location, the what, so what you were doing, with whom, and also when, so for example, a day, date, and or time. And this can also be known as temporal information. What is distinctive about ABM is while it comprises the two components of semantic and episodic memory, it also references the self and allows us to mentally time travel back to the event. This process is what the cognitive neuroscientist Endel Tolving called autonoetic consciousness. For a memory to be truly autobiographical, the memory has to contain information that was specifically experienced by the individual. To give you an example, imagine you and a friend both go to a music concert and see a band that you both love. Asked about it a week later, there will be elements of both of your recollections that will be very similar, such as where it was, at what time it took place and who you were with. These details will be a combination of facts and information about the event, and you both may also say how wonderful it was, so there's some emotional element there as well. However, as you talk more about how you felt in regards to your emotional and physiological state, this is where the recollections may start to show some variations. For example, you may have been standing next to a person who used their smartphone to record part of the concert, which made you feel angry, and also that you felt hot and bothered and needed to get a drink. In contrast, your friend, who was completely unaware of this, had no memory of this event occurring, and instead recalled the wonderful person that they were standing next to who they fancied. It is these finer personal details that make the recollections autobiographical and unique to you. So let's have a go now at recalling two events. First of all, I'm going to give you the event 
and I'd like you to pause the podcast and try to recollect it in as much detail as you possibly can. Try to envisage where you were, who you were with, at what time, and also the finer details that make that memory truly unique to you, such as how you were feeling and thinking. Then what I'd like you to do is to rate your memory for two things. It's going to be about how easy it was to recollect, as well as how vivid the image or the memory was in your mind's eye. If the task is easy to do, then you'll score it five out of five. If it was difficult, score it one out of five. In the same way, if the memory was very vivid in your mind's eye, score it five out of five. If it was fuzzy, give it one out of five. So here we go. I'm going to give you the first event that I'd like you to recall. It's having breakfast this morning. Hopefully you've had a go at this and you paused the podcast and then gave yourself a rating for ease as well as vividness of recollection. So how did you find that? Was that easy to do? Possibly because it was this morning, it may be very vivid. It could also be a very easy thing to do. Now let me give you a different one to do. The next memory I'd like you to recollect is your first day at high school. Have a go and remember to rate it for ease to recollect as well as how vivid it was in your mind's eye. Okay, how did you find the second one? In most cases, and for most people, the second memory I asked you to recall would have been harder to do than the first one. And that's because memories for recent events are easier to access and have more vividness than those that are from longer ago. However, this is not always the case. Some older memories have a lot of emotional relevance for the individual and these memories are usually recalled to the same level or better than recent memories, especially if the recent memory is for an event that occurs frequently and is typical, such as eating breakfast. So the thing to consider here is that the more emotionally salient or important an event is, the more likely it will be accessible for recollection. But more about this later in the podcast. So where in the brain is autobiographical memory considered to reside? How autobiographical memories are represented in the human brain and whether this changes with time are questions central to memory neuroscience. Although their precise contributions are still contested in the literature, two regions in particular have been consistently implicated. The hippocampus, which I've talked about before in episode one, and a new area, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, an area located in your frontal lobe. I know the name sounds really complicated, but I hope I can explain how you can locate it and where I'm referring to. Before I go any further, if you'd like a little bit more information about the basic anatomy of the brain, then please listen to episode one of the Everyday Neuro podcast series as I go over this in greater detail. So let's start with the term prefrontal. This refers to the frontmost portion of the frontal lobe of your brain, just behind the skull region of your forehead. The next part, ventromedial, refers to directions. Ventral refers to the underside or lower portion of the brain. So try and imagine where the ventral fin on a fish is located. Medial refers to the middle of the brain. So not the surface, but deep in the core area of the brain. So relatively speaking, 
the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is approximately the lower middle frontal portion of the frontal lobe. If you're feeling curious and would like to check out if you've imagined it correctly, then please have a look at the image that I've provided in the show notes for this episode, which is EN008, and it can be found on the podcast page of the Everyday Neuro website, everydayneuro.com.au forward slash podcasts. Some of us may wish we had better memories for our life events, and I've met many people who have said that having recollection of the fine details from their past would give them great happiness. In response to this, I ask them to consider that remembering involves not only the events that have brought joy, but also those that have been difficult. And when I teach about memory, I mention highly superior autobiographical memory. This is an ability to remember everything in fine detail without the use of memory strategies known as mnemonics. A good example of this is presented in a case study of AJ, published in the journal NeuroCase, the Neural Basis of Cognition, in 2006 by Elizabeth Parker and colleagues. AJ, when given a date at random, can recall with incredible accuracy what she was doing on that day, as well as other information about how she felt, making her autobiographical memory superior compared to most of us, but also excessive, such that it is highly emotionally draining and requires a huge amount of her energy to direct her thinking to focus on other tasks. There are now other reported cases of highly superior autobiographical memory, as presented in an article by Aurora Laporte and colleagues, and I've included this in the show notes. In this article, along with others from the team of researchers, it has been revealed that highly superior autobiographical memory is distinct from other cognitive abilities, as most of the known cases do not show better abilities compared to age and education match controls and other neuropsychological measures of cognition. This suggests that highly superior autobiographical memory is a distinct behavior, and if we study it using neuroimaging techniques, then we might be able to provide insight into the neurofunctional basis of this type of memory. So although for some the notion of having highly superior autobiographical memory is desirable, people living with the ability often report that it can lead to mood disorders such as anxiety and depression. Indeed, there are many reasons why the brain is developed to not allow this high level of fine detail recall. For example, remembering traumatic and negative thoughts can result in a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. Having too much detail can limit the ability to select the relevant information to be able to deal with a task effectively, as there is too much information which places a huge cognitive load on our working memory processes. And this is something I talk about in episode 5. Also, such memories have a lot of emotional content that can interfere with decision making, causing us to be confused and distressed. If you'd like to know more about highly superior memory, then please watch the YouTube clip I've included in the show notes that features Dr. Craig Stark, a co-author on the Aurora Laporte article, who talks about this topic in far more detail. So perhaps extensive autobiographical memory recall may not be as desirable as some may have once considered. However, the opposite phenomenon of having limited autobiographical memory can also occur. 
Before I tell you a little bit about people who live with severely deficient autobiographical memory, I'd like you to know that in adult-acquired amnesia, or in other words, the amnesia occurred during late adolescence or adulthood, then in most cases it affects both the semantic and the episodic parts of the memory, as observed in the world-famous amnesia case of HM. And for more information about HM's amazing contribution to neuroscience, I've included an article in the show notes by Larry Squire. In rare cases, there are some adult-onset amnesia cases that have relative sparing of their semantic memory. And as I say, this is highly unusual. This is documented in the excellent article by Daniela Paloma and colleagues. And she reports about three cases of healthy individuals with a selective impairment in only the episodic component of autobiographical memory. In all three cases, there was no history of the typical causes of memory issues, such as birth birth complications, seizures, stroke, traumatic brain injury, or neurological diseases, nor was there any evidence of psychological trauma. So in direct contrast to highly superior autobiographical memory, these people had severely deficient autobiographical memory. As noted by Paloma, each person reported an inability to re-experience personal events. So this is the autonoetic consciousness that Endel Tolving has reported. And this was especially true for the visual aspects of such memories. Although their ability to learn and retain factual or semantic information was normal on the basis of everyday functioning and performance on other measures of intelligence. As Paloma and colleagues state in their article, these rare cases of adult-onset severely deficient autobiographical memory closely resemble another group of individuals, a group that are very close to my own heart, those of children and adolescents living with the syndrome developmental amnesia. Many of us have heard and know about the chronic memory issues that affect adults, such as in dementia cases, especially Alzheimer's disease, and I discussed this in episode three. But what about amnesia in children and adolescents, which is a topic far less familiar for most of us? It often comes as quite a surprise to learn that there are many children and adolescents living with chronic memory issues due to damage to brain regions associated with memory, in particular a single hippocampus or both known as bilateral hippocampal pathology. As I'll be mentioning this again in the future, then just to recap, there is a hippocampus in the right and the left hemisphere of the brain and when both are damaged we call it bilateral hippocampal pathology. Some of the ways that damage can occur is through a traumatic event to the brain, also known as a traumatic brain injury, such as when you have a fall or a sporting injury. Other acquired brain injuries occur in very early life when there is an insult to the brain that is due to issues with the heart, so cardiovascular issues, the lungs or respiratory system, or when both are concerned, so cardiorespiratory problems. This can have an effect where there's an insufficient amount of oxygen being available. This can lead to something called acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, which basically means that not enough oxygen enters the bloodstream, which then starves the brain of the vital oxygen it requires to function properly. Hence, when there are issues with the heart, the lungs or both, then this can have serious consequences for the young brain. 
An area of the brain that is particularly vulnerable to such insults is the hippocampus. Hence, some newborn babies, also known as neonates, undergoing treatment for heart and lung issues, might sustain bilateral hippocampal damage early in life and then memory problems occur later in childhood. As I mentioned earlier, in some severe cases, a rare syndrome occurs labelled developmental amnesia by Farinay Varga-Kadem and David Gadian. This is when there is bilateral damage to the hippocampus but no other neurological issues. Developmental amnesia is characterised by an impairment in the episodic component of memory with relative sparing of semantic fact-based memory and recognition of information. All other cognitive functions such as language, reading and writing, mathematics, working memory, attention and problem solving are unaffected. So the profile I've just described is actually quite similar to what we heard about from the study by Paloma about the rare cases of adults who have severely deficient autobiographical memory. As many children with developmental amnesia have intact intellectual abilities, then the problems with event memory that I've told you about usually go undetected until a child starts school and is then asked to do tasks that tap into that episodic memory. So it could be something like being asked to write a diary about what you did at the weekend. It could be being asked to do a task in the future, which they will forget and won't do. And also it involves completing homework. However, schoolwork is not the only issue. Unlike with most adult cases of amnesia where the person has already developed a sense of self and also an identity, in stark contrast, children living with developmental amnesia often are unable to recall the past and they're not able to plan for the future or form meaningful friendships and therefore they lack the prerequisites for independent living and for forming an identity. Can you imagine this kind of world where you go to school, a sporting club or even an activity group, and you're meeting new people only to forget what you did, what was said, and what you were meant to do in the future. And this can occur within an hour or two of the event happening. These things are fundamental to being able to develop a sense of self and to be able to complete tasks, also to make friends and to form relationships. The feedback from many parents and caregivers of children who have got this long-standing chronic memory problem are that their children are often considered to be lazy and forgetful or are failing to make the necessary efforts to attend to tasks. For these families, as well as the individual, the lack of knowledge about these symptoms can be really frustrating and also has long-term detrimental effects on well-being for all concerned. Fortunately, research into such issues, and in particular developmental amnesia, has been a long-standing focus of a fantastic group of cognitive psychologists and neuroscientists that I've had the great privilege to work with. This group, led by Farinay Varga Kadem at the Institute of Child Health, which is part of University College London, aims to provide insight into such memory issues that affect children and adolescents. So, along with neonatalists and allied health teams at Great Ormond Street Hospital, in 2005, Farinay, along with a big group of us, embarked on a five-year study to investigate the occurrence of developmental amnesia in three at-risk groups 
groups of children. So there were those born prematurely before 32 weeks gestation. There was a group that had been born with cardiac issues and also a group with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure and were potentially at risk of sustaining hippocampal atrophy or hippocampal death and consequently suffering from some degree of memory impairment later in life. I was responsible for cognitively assessing and neuroimaging the children and adolescents who had had the acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. So just to remind you what that is, it's when a child has gone without enough oxygen and this then means that the brain has been starved for a short amount of time of that vital blood that's filled with oxygen and so the brain can sustain damage and in most cases it's the hippocampus that is affected. So as we documented in the 2015 article that we published in Cerebral Cortex, we found that many neonates treated for acute respiratory failure sustained significant hippocampal atrophy as a result of the associated oxygen loss and consequently do show a deficient memory later in life. And this is especially true for the episodic component of memory and autobiographical recall. For some children and adolescents who have had less severe damage to the hippocampus or hippocampi, then there is less impact on their memory. And a possible reason for this was proposed. We suggested that other regions of the brain that support semantic and recognition memory are recruited to try and compensate or back up for the lack of event memory, which we know is due to the damage to the hippocampus. Although there are major implications for episodic and autobiographical memory after there has been damage to the hippocampus, one of the things that we observed in the developmental amnesics is that they can still learn very well. And this is because we believe that they're utilising those intact abilities of semantic memory and recognition. However, if you were to ask a person with chronic memory problems or developmental amnesia about how they've learnt that information, then they will often struggle and will give you a very generic set of responses. An example of this is in an article that's recently been published by Rachel Elwood and Farine Varga-Kadem. And a link to this is in the show notes. And it's all about one of the most famous cases of developmental amnesia amnesia, a person called John. So this comes directly from the article and can be found on the first page. John sustained severe bilateral hippocampal damage as a result of hypoxic ischemic events that occurred when he was a neonate. Throughout his childhood and adult life, he has had difficulty remembering episodes from his past. John frequently visits our laboratory in London To do so, he travels to an underground train station nearby, then takes the lift to the street level and walks the remainder of the journey. On one such visit, the lift at the underground station was out of order and John had to climb the 171 steps to the surface, the equivalent of some 14 floors. When he arrived at the laboratory, he had no recollection of having climbed the stairs and confidently reported that he had taken the lift as normal. John was questioned about his memory of this event. How do you know that you took the lift today? John declared, I always take the lift. Why is John so confident that he always takes the lift when he has no memory of doing so? If John has no recollection of his life events as they occur, how does he learn what he typically does?
So this example clearly demonstrates that people with developmental amnesia can learn and they do rely heavily on the intact abilities of fact-based information or semantic memory as well as familiarity and recognition. Having met John, he comes across as a very confident guy and he often answers questions in a way where you would never doubt whether or not they are correct. But as this example shows, when things vary from the typical, when this is where inaccuracies in recollection are evident. For the many children and adolescents that do have chronic memory problems or in the rare cases developmental amnesia, then it's all about developing strategies to help them cope. Although awareness of memory issues like the ones I've talked about today is growing, there is also a huge need to provide effective interventions and strategies that can provide children and adolescents with the necessary support. The need for personalized child and adolescent-based interventions is therefore one of my passions, especially after experiencing the problems firsthand. And also, it's not just about the individual with the memory issues, but also the impact that it has on the family, the caregivers, and educators. So in the next episode, I will share with you some of the work that is currently being done to provide such support and new ways to give strategies and interventions that actually could make a difference to children and adolescents living with chronic memory issues. So that brings me to the end of this episode about autobiographical memory. I hope you have enjoyed the information I have provided. Should you like more information on any of the topics I have discussed today, then please contact me at everydayneuro at gmail.com or use the contact us option on the website. This podcast covers information that is explored further in the Understanding and Enhancing Human Memory Workshop, ENW01, details of which can be found on the workshop page of the website. Bookings are made online using a secure payment system and are refundable up to 24 hours before the workshop commences. So thanks again for joining me and as always, please take really good care of that wonderful brain of yours and I hope you can join me again for another episode of the Everyday Neuro Podcast Series. Take care.